we're begin, I'd like to begin with prayer. We're going to pray for another local church and another pastor. We're going to pray, about, um, pray for our government, and then we're going to pray about how we spend these next few minutes. So let me say before that, though, if you're here for the first time, I want to welcome you. I meant to do that first thing. I'd like to welcome you from the pulpit. Hopefully you had somebody shake your hand early. Um, if you see this in the seat back in front of you, this little uh, welcome card, I'd invite you to fill that out and drop the bottom part of that or all of it. Yeah, drop the bottom part. You can keep that top part in the little offering satchel later in the morning. It'll give us a chance to uh, connect to you and get you some more information. Um, if you're sharing your morning with us for the first time, we're really glad you're here. Uh, we don't um, assume that we're the only place in town to gather and hear uh, a message that, that is life-altering to, to enjoy community. Uh, so we really count it a privilege that you've decided to share your morning with us. And I want you to know that you're welcome. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, first, I want to pray for another pastor in our community, for Jimmy Vaughn and for Authentic Life Fellowship. I am thankful, Lord, for what seems to be going on in the life of that church, just what appears to be just a time of real health and real um, uh, growth, and that they are flourishing. Uh, Jimmy, just uh, not knowing him, but seeing him through... uh, Uh, Facebook updates and hearing about how things are going just seems to be in a really good place, Lord. I I just pray that right now that you would just um, continue to use them, uh, continue to grow that that church family, um, uh, of course, to grow them numerically, but more than anything, Lord, especially in light of this morning's sermon, I pray that you will grow them in the knowledge of you, and whether that means numerical growth, um, it it could mean um, a smaller church. Um, ironically, we wouldn't hope for that, but Lord, we just pray for just a real, real health in a relationship with you. And just so, so excited for them, so thankful for their ministry in Greenville, uh, for the people that are being equipped for worship and wonder. Uh, we pray for Jimmy, too, that as his ministry, as he's serving in a single pastor model, I just burden for him and pray that you would guard him from some of the uh, difficulties of carrying that load by himself. I pray that he is surrounding himself uh, with families and men and women that are, are shouldering the res- responsibility of ministry and that he's not um, taking all that by himself. I pray for his marriage, for his uh, family life, Lord. I pray that that is fueled by worship and um, that that spills over into the pulpit and into his ministry. Lord, also this morning, uh, as a church, we want to pray about... Um, the news this week with the video that was recorded, um, the Planned Parenthood video, Lord, it is, it, is, uh, it is as heartbreaking and as vile and as unimaginable as it could ever be. And we ask you to intervene uh, now. We ask, for, um, we ask for people, even if they're not embracing uh, faith, the faith argument, that just on the basis of being human beings, that we can treat other human beings with enough respect to first of all let them live, let them be born. What a tragic, tragic time we live in, Lord. We beg you, beg you to act. I don't know what that looks like, but you have done many things over thousands of years that were uh, out of your script, out of your book, 
that were hard to imagine and hard to, and impossible to even expect. We pray for the unexpected right now. And maybe this was it this week. And maybe this was the thing that would open people's eyes to just how vile this whole practice of abortion is. Um, Lord, I pray for our government that some people in decision-making positions would be convicted about this practice, uh, that they would have an absolute and complete heart change, and the support for Planned Parenthood, even the, the legalization of abortion would be overturned. We're praying big prayers for little we children. Lord, also this morning, I, um, I pray for how we spend these next few minutes. So thankful for your word. So thankful for people that just have an appetite. I know that appetite comes from the Holy Spirit, and I thank you for that. I pray that that appetite is hearty this morning, that we are a hungry, thirsty people. And I pray that you will speak to us through Ephesians 1, that we will come to experience you in these next few minutes. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Let me acquaint you with where we are, what we're doing, if you're here for the first time or first of a few times, so you kind of know where you're stepping uh, into, or you're stepping into a conversation. Uh, in the life of our church, we have, um, for the most part, at least in terms of my preaching, I've preached through John, I've preached through Hebrews, and now I'm preaching through the book of Ephesians in tandem with Isaiah. We haven't started Isaiah yet, but we tend to, not exclusively, but tend to preach through a book of the Bible. And uh, then when the, the, we're, we're not enslaved to that, we have times where we may step away and have a topical series, or um, Scott is preaching through Romans, Brad is preaching through First or Second Timothy. Um, we, have, we have times where uh, we step away for topical sermons, but for the most part, our bread and butter meal for us as a church is to move through a book and not to deal with it topically, but to deal with it as if we're bringing ourselves as worshipers to see what God has to say to us, period. Ironically, the beautiful thing is that the Holy Spirit weaves together our circumstances so that oftentimes we find that our need is well met with a meal that we didn't expect was going to provide some nourishment for that particular need that the Holy Spirit weaves together those, those dynamics. So um, we have been in the book of Ephesians for the last couple of months. Uh, this morning, we're going to be focusing on um, a little section beginning in verse 15 all the way through 23. And so I'd like to read that section, and um, then I'll share with you where we're going to be going. I have five passages I'm going to have you turn to over the course of this morning, and I'll share with those I'll share those with you in just a moment. Let's read our, our home base passage this morning. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That would be speaking of the knowledge of God. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead 
and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over, the, over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What's happened so far in the first chapter of Ephesians Paul, in verses 3 through 14, has been worshiping vertically. In a lot of ways, what Paul has been doing in verses 3 through 14, what we've considered in these last few weeks, is that Paul has been enjoying these spiritual blessings. He states that in verse 3, that God the Father has blessed us, blessed the Ephesian church with spiritual blessings. And then, over the course of the rest of that passage, he, gets, he deals with particulars. God has granted them spiritual blessings, and then one breathless, periodless, commaless, long sentence, he goes into one spiritual blessing after another, the most of which were the Father's choice, the Son's earning redemption and forgiveness, the Spirit's seal making them as God's inheritance. Wonderful spiritual blessings. He goes from this vertical expression of worship, enjoying God and benediction, enjoying these spiritual blessings. And then in between verses 14 and 15, it appears that he actually stops to take a breath. He takes a breath and then he goes from this vertical act of worship to this horizontal application of worship by praying for the Ephesian church. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you in light of all these spiritual blessings. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. It's a beautiful picture of a guy that's loving God and loving people. And the way he's loving them is he prays for them. What we're going to do this morning, I had a plan of moving into the three particulars that he deals with in this passage. In fact, I coached you at the end of last week's sermon to begin to look at those three particulars and that we would consider the first of those three, the hope to which he's called you, but yet he stopped me down a little bit short of that to consider for a moment together what the big picture prayer is. What in the big picture, not dealing with the three particulars yet, but what specifically big picture he is praying for this church. He doesn't pray for their health. Physical uh, He doesn't pray for their health in growth. He doesn't pray that they don't have enough seats to seat everybody in the Ephesian church. He's not praying for promotion for some of people that it may be due a promotion in their job there in Ephesus. He's not praying that they'll find some favor with the Ephesian bosses there in Ephesus. He's not praying for many of the things that we pray for. And that doesn't mean that the things that we pray for are bad. But it means it should tell us what he's praying for as he languishes chained to a Roman guard in Rome under house arrest, as he's enjoying spiritual blessings, as he prays for them, that this really is some sweet prayer. This would be like go-to prayer for one another. This is the stuff. There's nothing wrong with praying for promotion or praying for health or praying for growth. But what we should see here is that he's praying for the cream He's praying for some really good things. He doesn't pray for their church growth. He doesn't pray for any upcoming VBSs. Nothing wrong with praying for those things. He doesn't even pray for lost folk here. He prays specifically and especially for the found that they would grow 
in the knowledge of God through the work of the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He prays for knowledge. Knowledge of God. Now let me ask you this question before we continue. Is the knowledge of God that important to you? Is the knowledge of God to you the first thing that you would pray for as you pray for yourself and as you pray for others? It's his go-to cream. It's the number one thing on the list. It is the list. He gets into his particulars here in a moment. But he prays for knowledge. Does the knowledge of God play a meaningful part in how you spend your time? Does the knowledge of God play any role, any part in how, in your priorities and the things that you're about from day to day and week to week? I hope that as a result of this message this morning that it may be heightened. If you're honest with yourself and it's a low commitment to the knowledge of God, that that might be changed and altered through how we spend these next few minutes. This word in verse 17, as he's praying for them, he says, I, don't cease to give, I do not cease to give thanks for you in verse 16, remembering you in, your, you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit. This is an old translation. The newer ESVs, if you have them in, in your hand, say the, with a capital S, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit in the knowledge of him. This word knowledge, I mentioned it last week, just touched on it. In fact, I mentioned it last week as gnosis. The root word in there is the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. But the word there, though, is a bigger word than gnosis. It's epignosis. It involves the strongest possible knowledge of God, And that's the only place we're going to spend our time this morning on that word, dealing with that word, what it means, and wrangling what he's praying for here so that we can walk away with a better understanding of what it means to know, epignosis, God. Now let me tell you how we're going to go about this. We're going to go about this with something called the analogy of faith. The reformers developed an interpretation model of Scripture for us that we use at Crosspoint Fellowship called the analogy of faith. It's sort of a weird phrase, but what it means is that we interpret Scripture with Scripture. If we have a word like this word here, epinosis, we want to go to other passages to help us make sense of what's actually being prayed for there. We could go to ancient Greek literature, and there's nothing wrong with that at times to see what that word might, might have meant then. But the better place to go would be going to God's Word to make sense of God's Word. That's how we interpret here, and that's why we often have you turn to other passages. This morning, I have five passages I'm going to have you turn to. One of them you've already turned to this morning. You should keep your finger in there or a bookmark because we're going to be coming back to that in Ephesians 1. But the other places, just to give you a heads up in case you want to make a little note of this, are going to be 2 Peter if you're not familiar with where those books of the Bible are and you have one of the seat Bibles there with you, that's on page 1018. You can jot that down. The second place we're going to have you go, I'm going to have you go after Second Peter, is Romans 10. That's on page 946. Romans 10. The third 
is 2 Timothy 3 on page 996. And the fourth is Hebrews 8 on page 1005. And the fifth and final place I'm going to have you turn is Ephesians 4 on page 977. That's 2 Peter 1, Romans 10, 2 Timothy 3, Hebrews 8, and Ephesians 4. And the reason we're going to these other passages is we're going to interpret Scripture with Scripture. We're going to do some work this morning. It's not going to be a long, drawn-out process, but we're going to be faithful to interpreting Scripture with Scripture. And something I don't want to do this morning is I don't want to strangle the Word by over-examining it. That's possible, and it happens often. We can strangle the Word to try and make it mean something that we want it to mean and walk away with something that we think is, is really solid, um, but we could be disobedient to the context. While I don't want to strangle the Word by over-examining it, I also don't want to miss a cue for something that's very important in Paul's use of this particular word in his prayer, epinosis. I want to give you a couple of glimpses. We're going to define this word and develop this word over these next few minutes, but I want to give you a couple of glimpses of how important epinosis is. So turn to that first place I asked you to turn after Ephesians 1 to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter. I want to show you in just four brief passages here in the book of 2 Peter how important this particular thing that Paul prayed for is to faith. I want to show you in these passages that it is part and parcel to faith. Here's the first passage. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. In the greeting... May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In the epinosis of God and of Jesus our Lord. I want you to see what he's praying here, what he's, he's, he's asking for in this opening greeting, that grace and peace would come to these people that he's writing to, the believers that are dispersed all over the Roman Empire, that grace and peace would come to them through the knowledge of God. The next verse gives us some more clues as to how important this knowledge of God is. In verse 3, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. If all we had were those two verses, hopefully we would walk away thinking, man, this word epinosis, this word knowledge, this thing that Paul's praying for appears to be very important because Peter here is saying, man, I want grace and peace to come to you through the knowledge of the Lord. And I want all things that pertain to life and godliness to come to you through the knowledge of the Lord. It is massively important. Look over at verse 5 in the same chapter. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with gnosis. That's not epinosis. Although it's translated the same in our Bible as knowledge here at a few verses later, or a few sentences later. This is gnosis. This is the smaller word 
for knowledge. Supplement your virtue with gnosis and your gnosis with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the epinosis of our Lord Jesus Christ. The knowledge is translated the same word in the English, but in the Greek, it's two different words. This first reference is gnosis, and it's just knowing. The second word is the bigger word we're looking at today. What Paul prayed for for the Ephesian church. Here, what Peter says, man, may all these virtues be at play and at work in your life so that your epinosis of God is not hindered. He uses it another time in chapter 2, verse 20. Look across the page. For if, after they've escaped the defilements of the world, he's just been speaking about people that, that have betrayed the faith, have walked away from the faith. He says, if they've escaped, after they've escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. He's speaking about those that have come to know the Lord but have walked away from the faith, that their last state is worse than before they had ever even known the Lord. But I want you to see how this word is used here. After they've escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge, epinosis, of the Lord. Man, how important is this thing that we're talking about, this thing that Paul prays for? It is the thing in which we get grace and peace. It's the thing in which we understand what even godliness and all things to pertaining life that pertain to life are. It is how we escape the defilement of the world through Epinosis, through knowledge, through the thing that he's praying for here. It's worth a morning. <laughs> and here's the heartbreak if it's missing. Turn to Romans chapter 10. Here's what it looks like if it's missing. Romans chapter 10, I mentioned this passage last week just sort of described it, but I want you to see it. I want you to see what's unfolding here in Romans chapter 10 over these first couple of verses. Paul's just been dealing with the, the fact that not all of Israel has believed on Christ and how brokenhearted he is about that, that they haven't all turned to faith in Christ and been saved. And in chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved for I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to epinosis. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, that would be their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And that's in the next verse of what that is. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The tragedy here is that they were zealous for God, but they lacked the knowledge of God in this word that we're considering today and dismissed Christ as the answer to their righteousness problem. And they tried to earn their righteousness on their own, and they're lost. So you see how important it is to the faith, man, all these things that come from 2 Peter, all these glimpses that we have, that it is essential and part and parcel to faith, and then in Romans 10, you see it missing. 
and you see some people that are zealous for God, but they don't have epinosis, and they're lost. Man, how important is epinosis? How important is this knowledge we're considering today? It's everything. It may not be something that we use every day, though, when we, say, when we speak of the word knowledge. And that's how I want to spend these next few minutes is what he's praying for here, though it's translated as knowledge, is different from how we use the word. And that's why it's worth us spending a morning and exposing it in a way that we might walk away with a different understanding of the word. There's a clue back in Ephesians chapter 1. Go ahead and turn back there. Hopefully you've kept a bookmark or a finger there because we're going to be going back and forth to Ephesians 1. The phrase, he says, I don't, I don't cease to give thanks for you. I'm remembering you in my prayers, and I'm praying that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That little phrase is a clue that we're talking about something different from how we usually use the word. That the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened. That's a clue that we're talking about something different than knowledge as we often use the word. Get this. Though they are already sealed by the Holy Spirit. He said that in the spiritual blessings. That's one of the spiritual blessings. You were sealed. He's praying here that the Spirit will continue to do the work of opening the eyes of their most central being. Their heart to the knowledge, the epinosis of God. Just let this hit you for a moment. The heart and knowledge don't usually go together in the way we use the word knowledge. You don't use the heart. How many teachers have you heard over the years? I heard plenty of them that saying, Ben, please use your head. Get your head around this concept. Get your head around this algebra. Get your head around this thing that this is how we use. This thing up here is how we typically use and deal with knowledge. But Paul gives us a clue. He's talking about something altogether different when he says the eyes of your heart being opened to the knowledge of him. He's not praying for thinking knowledge here. He's not praying for head knowledge here. He's praying for something altogether different and altogether more. Now, also, the fact that he's praying for it after he's already said, you were sealed, done deal, tells us this thing, this big word, this epinosis, this, the thing that he's praying for is something that's ongoing in the life of the Ephesian church, ongoing in the life of the believer. It's not a done deal like the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've been holding out a definition up to this point because I want you to sort of have an itch that you want scratched right now and saying, what does this word mean? Please give us a meaning. Finally, I'm going to give it to you. This word and the way it's used right here would be more like experiencing God. He's praying for the church, the Ephesian church, more than they would have, not, not this head knowledge of him, but this heart enjoyment and experience of God. This is the word you would use for how you know your closest of friends that you spend tons of time with, that you can like read their thoughts. This is the word that you would use for how a husband and wife know each other. 
Not know about each other, but know each other. This is a big, robust word, and it's beautiful when you really enjoy it and spend some time considering it. When you consider that it's not head knowledge and that it's a different kind of knowledge, you have to know that you can store up data on someone. You can store up knowledge in your head about someone. But one thing you can't store up is you can't store up relationship. Relationship is born out in daily doses like manna. You can store up every fact about every person in the world but never really know them. But knowing someone in a relationship takes place every single day. Try storing it up in your marriage and see how that works out. Try storing up some relationships. Say, honey, we're going to have a date night tonight and then I'll talk to you and I'll see you in a month for our next date night. See how that marriage goes. It's going to languish and it's going to be quite empty. But here Paul prays that they, this Ephesian church, having been chosen by the Father, having been redeemed and forgiven by the work of the Son, and having been sealed by the Spirit, that now that they would experience and know their God. This is what he's praying for, man. Experiencing one another too. I mentioned this, it's like manna experiencing God in the way of, like, uh, if manna is going to help us understand what this, this, this is like, it's, it's done in daily do- doses. If you know the story of manna, you know that you couldn't store up a bunch of it. It was distributed in daily doses. If you tried to store a bunch of it, it spoiled. You had to get out there and pick some more of it. If you tried to stockpile it, it went bad. And the same is true for this particular knowledge of God. You have to do the work of going back out and gathering up some more knowledge and experience of God. Do you realize, church family, that conversion is not the end? Do you realize that conversion is just the beginning where from that point in time you begin to come in a relationship and experience God from day to day, year to year. Conversion is not the sum and total of what we're after in each other. It's not the sum and total of what we're after for Greenville. It's not what Paul was about. You don't ever see Paul talking about these categories of saved and unsaved, about the closest you get is him saying, I wish that all of Israel would be saved. But he doesn't think of people in terms of, when he's writing to these churches that he's planted, in terms of let's get these guys saved and deal with these lost people. He's not speaking categorically. He's speaking about those that are in, have the knowledge of God and those who don't. For Paul, salvation is knowing God. How rich our understanding of salvation if that became our understanding of what it meant to be saved rather than reducing it to things like getting saved or being lost. What a robust understanding of salvation to see it as knowing God. Some of the questions that people have asked me over the years, some of the questions that you may be asking, some of the questions that you wrestle with over over time might just seem almost nonsensical if you began to see salvation as knowing God. Things like, can you lose your salvation? You're not asking those kind of questions when you begin to see salvation in terms of knowing God. 
It's a bigger conversation. Salvation is so much more robust. Those little questions become just sort of weird. What? And knowing God is eternal life. On the night of Jesus' arrest, he prayed a prayer in John chapter 17. It is one of my greatest treasures, the high priestly prayer. As a church, it was one of the most profound seasons in the life of our church, working through John chapter 17. And listen to what Jesus says in this prayer in John chapter 17, verse 3. He says, and this is eternal life. Are you listening? I just can't imagine that the disciples, as they heard him pray, didn't look up and go, okay, I want to hear what this is. And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Man, that's salvation. Knowing, epinosis, experiencing, enjoying, being in relationship with God. You see why those questions become nonsensical? Those typical questions that we can work through, you're not strange by asking those questions, but you see when it becomes bigger, more robust understanding of salvation, they just kind of don't fit anymore. I thought I'd give you a few glimpses of what it looked like to experience God. You can jot these passages down. If you're just one of those that, man, I absolutely need to see the scripture, you can turn there, but I'm just going to launch into four different glimpses. Four different pictures of someone knowing God, experiencing God in the way that this prayer illustrates, or this prayer leans. The first is in Genesis chapter 28. Listen to this. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place, and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to do. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I didn't even know it. He experienced God. And says, and he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. It left this guy awash. He experienced and knew God. Jacob. Here's another guy, another experience. It may seem familiar to you in Exodus chapter 33. The nation of Israel has just sinned with the golden calf. 
Moses has interceded for them, and in the midst of him interceding for them, that God wouldn't now abandon them. In verse 13 of 33, he says, Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. In verse 18, Moses says, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. This is what God says to him. And I will proclaim to you, before you, my name, the Lord I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you can't see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'm going to stuff you in the cleft of this rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. So in chapter 34, the Lord passed before him, and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth, and he worshiped. He begged for it. I want to know you. I want to see your glory. And God showed up and he worshiped. You want to know what epinosis looks like? There's a couple of nice examples. Surely God is in this place. Get on my face and worship and bow to the Lord. There's another nice picture. In the book of 1 Kings, one of my favorites, Elijah is down. He's been going after um, the prophets of Baal. He's won the victory against the prophets of Baal, and this gal named Jezebel is after him. And Elijah's doing what happens to us at times where people get really big and God gets really small. Where what people think about you or what people say about you or the fear of man gets bigger than an enjoyment of God. And that's what happened to Elijah. And Elijah's down, man. He's down. It says in verse 9, Then he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He feels kind of lonely. turns out he's not alone, but he thinks he is. And God said to him, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by in a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. Cover up. I have experienced the Lord. 
man, he's emboldened in his ministry, and he goes right back to work after this because he's experienced and known the Lord. One other picture of experience in the Lord I'll share with you is in Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of the Lord who called. And his house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He experienced and knew God. And it bowled him over. He's looking for a crack in the floor to hide. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Man, those are some beautiful pictures of what it looks like. And I'll show you one brief picture of how tragic when it's missing. Turn to 2 Timothy. Tragic is the word. 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's on page 996 of your seat Bible there. I want you to watch what unfolds in this passage and watch attentively. Pay really close attention to what happens to someone when epinosis is missing. But understand this, that in the last days, in verse 1, in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So far, you're looking at this going, yeah, that sounds like the world. Okay, maybe we're in end times. But then keep reading. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. He's talking about people that are appearing to be church folk. Man, take that list and superimpose that on church folk, and then we're talking end times. Of course the world looks like that. It always has. But superimpose that on folks that have an appearance of godliness. Man, I keep reading. Avoid such people. He says, avoid folks that are acting this way but have some sort of appearance of godliness because something's not reconciling there. He says, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at epinosis. Learning lots of data. They may have been able to answer all the Sunday school questions. They may have known the catechisms. Always learning. They might be you. They might be me. This is not just talking about women here. This is talking about what could happen to any of us if we're always learning but never arriving at epinosis. This is how important this is. Because weak-willed women and weak-willed men can be easily fooled by those who have the appearance of godliness 
if we are always learning but never arriving at epinosis. So Paul prays for this. Man, do you see how good it is that he prays for this? You see how important it is? He prays for this kind of knowledge of God, a real experience and relationship with God. And he prays beautifully, not for some of the church there. If you're paying attention to how it unfolds in Ephesians chapter 1, he's praying for all the saints. It says in verse 15, he says, I've, I've noticed your love for all the saints. And then as he prays, he's not teasing out or parsing out. Now, here I'm praying for the elders. Or here I'm praying for the deacons. Or here I'm praying for the fathers of families. He's praying for all the church here as he prays for an experience, an epinosis, a relationship with God. Knowing God this way, every person in this this room right now should hear this. Knowing God in this way isn't just for me. And it's not for just some of you. It should be for all of you. Let me show you this. Turn to Hebrews chapter 8. If you're following the list of passages I gave you, you know we're getting toward the end of this message. And I don't, man, I don't want you to get tired. Because tired people miss stuff. So kind of do a little rouse yourself out here. Kind of, you know, take a sip of that coffee. Whatever you have to do here. Because, man, this, this plane's about to land. It's going to be good. I want you to see this passage in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 10. This is, the good news. this is the good news of the covenant that we walk in. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. The writer of the book of Hebrews here is pointing back to a covenant that was promised in the book of Jeremiah that was to come. And here, as he's mentioning it in Hebrews chapter 8, It's come. He's talking about a covenant that was prophesied that now they're in, that we're in, that we share with the Hebrews church. And look what he says. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one, excuse me, they shall teach, golly, hold on. Let me regroup. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This is the scandalous covenant that we walk in. This time that we were born into, we live under a covenant where you don't have to go to the priest who knows the Lord. You don't have to go to the priest that's experiencing the Lord so he can kind of help you reconcile some things with God. Every single one of you can know the Lord in that way. And not only can, you're called to. That's what Paul prayed for. That's the kind of access that we have to him now, that we can all know him in this way. It's a scandal. So, what did this mean for the Ephesian church? Man, this kind of knowledge that he prayed for. We spent the morning sort of exposing this. Let's apply it. I have three little application points for you. Here's the first. 
know that conversion is just the beginning. Parents, don't exhale when your child comes to faith in Christ like it's over. It's just started. You wouldn't exhale. Well, maybe moms might for a moment when the baby's born. Just for a moment, though. (laughs) Because then the work begins. Then you're pining for growth and health in them. Then you're pushing them toward maturity, teaching. And in the spiritual sense, we should be praying for one another that though we were sealed in the Holy Spirit, that that same Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, would be at work bringing us to new and greater and more mature levels of the knowledge of him, epinosis. Conversion is just the beginning. That's not the goal. Knowing God is the goal. You're supposed to grow up. Adults wearing diapers are pitiful. Just imagine it. Baby Huey kind of picture. It's pitiful. Pulpits that serve up baby food is pitiful. Leaving babies as babies. You should expect more. This pulpit will serve more. The pulpit of this church plant will serve more. I can promise you. The pulpit of C3 in commerce serves more because we're supposed to grow up. Secondly, last place I was going to have you turn is Ephesians 4. And I do want you to see this, Ephesians 4. This is the second application. I share this next point with... trying to think of the word. Maybe I'll think of it as I share it. A sense of humor, maybe? Maybe I'll refine that as, we, as I share it. This next point of application. You remember Paul started the letter out saying, here's our spiritual blessings, and then he says, I'm praying for y'all for epinosis, for experience of God, like manna, this daily interaction, knowledge of God. I'm praying for this. Now look over here. Keep all those things in your, in your, in your sort of your pocket, and now look over here at verse, or chapter 4 of what unfolds. In verse 8, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. This is speaking of Christ's victory, that he gave gifts to the church. Now look down at verse 11. Here are the gifts that he gave to the church. Not like trophies or artwork or money. I'm thinking kind of gifts he might get, like candles, you know, nice candles, housewarming gift. Here you go, here's, here's what he gave the church. He gave the apostle, he gave the prophets, he gave the evangelists, and he gave the shepherds and teachers. That last one, shepherds and teachers, can be translated, and is in some versions, pastors and teachers. And in some translations, they're synonymous, the pastor-teacher. There's a note down at the bottom of my ESV that's fitting. He gave apostles... They're all dead. They're dead. He gave some prophets. Wow, that'll come in handy sometimes. He gave prophets. They're all dead too. And he gave evangelists. They're not all dead. There are some amazing evangelists that God is using today even. And he gave, I wish I really had something sexy for you that God's going to use to grow us up to maturity. 
but wah, 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 he gave the pastor teacher to the church. And you're like, oh, he's, you're the gift he gave to the church? You and Scott and Brad? Oh, I would rather have the candle. It's his design. It's what he did. But look what he does with that gift. The evangelists, the apostle, prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, teachers, apostles are dead, prophets are dead, evangelists are alive, shepherds, pastor, teachers are alive. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge, epinosis, of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The really sort of, when I say I have a sense of humor about it, surprising news is the gift that he's given to the church to grow us up into maturity and to grow us in the knowledge of God are the evangelists and the pastor teacher. I wish I had something really novel for you, really cool. But that's all there is. At least in this passage. It's one of the primary means that he uses to grow us up in the knowledge and experience of God. And it's why, frankly, I dedicate myself to serving up hearty messages week after week after week. And I hope that I can until I can't anymore. Because there's a lot at stake. If one of the, one of the ways, and then it's the way that he's pointing to here, that you grow up to maturity is based on the work of the pastor teacher, then man, we better be serious about pastoring and teaching. Man, I want to ask you this, though. Do you expect to experience God when you hear the preaching of the word? If we're going to connect the dots here, it's not just about me. Do you expect and anticipate and even demand? I expect to experience God in the preaching of the word today. Or am I just getting my church on? Am I just getting my check in the block so I can feel better about myself the rest of this coming week? Are you expecting I'm going to have an encounter with the living God? Are you ready to do some work of gathering up manna when you come every week? You need to be. I'll be ready. Scott will be ready. He's never proven otherwise. Brad will be ready. He's never proven otherwise. Any other preacher that stands in this pulpit, Ryan is standing in this pulpit the next two Sundays, he will be ready. Ryan Lewis, one of our church planners. Will you? It's where you're going to be knowing God. Here's the third thing for you. Thankfully, the pulpit is not the only place. It is, according to Paul, a primary place, but there are other places that we can come to know God. I'll share a passage with you from Psalm 42. It's just a beautiful picture of the type of of the attitude in where I'm going in this next, in this last and final point. Psalm 42 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my, or so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Other places to experience and know 
God are within the spiritual disciplines and through the spiritual disciplines. Scott preached on it recently. He taught on it on Wednesday nights. The spiritual disciplines and ones that I would offer up especially are prayer, meditation, and study. Prayer, meditation, and personal and family study. And I ask you to consider, do you hunger and thirst for God so much so that you'll open your Bibles during the week? Do you hunger and thirst for God enough so that you realize that Sundays aren't enough? That you need to engage Him in prayer? That you need to meditate on His Word? I gave some examples this morning, the sort of high watermark examples, four of them of experiencing God. And you might look at those examples and go, man, those were very um, unique moments with unique people in unique situations, I would ask you to look at them with a different set of eyes and realize that Jacob laid his head on an ordinary rock. On an ordinary night. And experienced an extraordinary God. Moses hid out in an ordinary cleft of an ordinary rock as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, passed by. Isaiah is just in an ordinary year when a pretty good king died, experienced the Lord. And then Elijah, hears an extraordinary God in a still, small voice And I would offer to you that you can enjoy and you must. You're called to. I'm begging for it with Paul, for this church and for this people, that you can enjoy and experience God in the ordinary whisper of a calendar day that has nothing on it other than the number. That you experience him in the ordinariness of life. Man. God, as a practice, seems to work with unimpressive people in unimpressive settings. And in keeping with his practice, he is experienced in ordinary Monday mornings with your Bible open, in ordinary Wednesday mornings when a few ordinary dudes gather and pray for other ordinary people. That's when we come to know him. That's when we come to experience him. He's experienced when ordinary families spend some time together over an ordinary meal or in an ordinary den talking about God, praying to him and together knowing him. It comes in daily doses, in time well spent with a God-besotted life. Look that word up today. A God-besotted life. Let me pray. God, I thank you that, first of all, that we can know you through the work of Christ. That you have made a way for us so that we have the seal and the mark of the Holy Spirit. So that our sins have been forgiven and we have been redeemed and adopted to the point where we can approach the throne of grace boldly. And Lord, I marvel that first of all, that we even can know you, that we're not so blinded by sin and death and darkness that we can't even see your goodness and your holiness and your grace and your mercy, that you've opened the eyes of our hearts, Lord, I pray that you continue to do. You've opened them in salvation, I pray that you continue to do them in just the dailiness of life, that you open those eyes 
to your hope, the hope to which we've been called, to the riches of our inheritance, and to the power of the resurrection. God, I pray for this church. I pray for myself. I pray for our families. I pray for those even visiting with us this morning. If it's only one visit, that our understanding of salvation will be more robust after today, that we will not see it as a status change, but we will see it as coming into a relationship and experiencing and knowing you. I beg for that in me. I beg for that in this people. God, we are thankful for this time. Thankful for these glimpses into others and their experiences with you. Thankful that you've given us this week to experience you in advance. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our, our supper this morning is from Psalm 34. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like, but you don't have to. I know I may have uh, pushed the envelope on satellite passages this morning, but I do encourage you to list, listen whether you turn there or not. Let me give you a sort of a, a prep, a sort of a, a little bit of instruction about the supper. The supper is for those who know him or who are seeking to know him. So I encourage you, if you have no interest in the Lord, if you don't want to know him, then um, just wait for lunch. Don't eat this meal. This is for those who know him. Psalm 34, beginning in verse 1, Psalm of David. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Sounds God besotted. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. That's what we do every single week when we take the supper together, is we taste together literally. And we see and are reminded that the Lord is indeed good. We together take refuge in him through the work of Christ that we're reminded of every single week when we take this supper. A broken body and shed blood. That's our only refuge. But it's a good one. Let's distribute the elements and enjoy the supper together. I hope and pray that there are some times in your walk where you feel like you want to cover your face because you've seen, seen His holiness. Or that you want to bow down and worship. Or maybe other times where you want to scurry, find a crack in the floor to hide from His holiness, saying, I'm a man of unclean lips. Um, I pray there are other times where you hear his still small voice.
the, the supper, we take the supper every single week, hoping that the supper is one of those encounters every single week where we together really, I mean, in not just symbolically, but really. Now, this isn't Jesus' body, but we, we experience God in this moment so much so that it's not just symbol. We are knowing him together in this moment when we taste and see that the Lord is good. So together in faith, let's taste and see. In faith, let's take and drink.